Titus chapter 2. It says in your bulletin, we're going to get through verse 15. Ha! We're going to get through verse 10. Let's read this. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Titus chapter 2. Paul continues a thought, and he says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's stop and pray again. Father, what we need, I pray that you would give us today. You know what we need, Lord. You know that better than we do. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us, meet our needs today. Give us our daily bread. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. By definition, salvation brings a complete change in heart, right? By definition, it brings a complete change in heart. This was part of the promise of the Lord to his people in Ezekiel chapter 36, Verses 25 to 28 says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules." You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Salvation, by definition, brings a complete change in heart. But there are those who don't believe that. There are those who believe that because they are simply baptized, their sins are washed away. There are those who believe that because their children are baptized, then they're automatically a part of God's covenant people and are safe and secure in the care of their Lord, regardless of whether or not they have ever repented of their sins and believed in him. And I should note that not every paedo-baptist believes that, but far too many do. A little closer to home for some of us 
is that there are also those who believe that if they have simply asked Jesus into their hearts, repeated a prayer of magic words, then they are saved. There are those who believe that because a person is raised, they raised his or her hand at Awana 30 years ago, then they are definitely saved, regardless of the fact that they have abandoned Christ's church and any semblance of Christianity or living the Christian life. In the fall of 1553, a group of unregenerate citizens of the city of Geneva in Switzerland started to stir up some trouble. This group, who became known as the Libertines, though they were baptized church members, baptized as infants, they appealed to the freedom of the Spirit as an excuse to indulge in the desires of the flesh. They argued against the gospel writers. They claimed to be part of the church, but they ridiculed the apostles, calling each of them uh, foul nicknames. They denied the resurrection, and yet they said they were part of the church. Some have said that these libertines, that what they said was that the the communion of the saints meant the common possession of all goods, including other men's wives. They were immoral, and they were proud of their liberty, and yet they insisted on their right to be a part of the church. Specifically, they insisted on their right to attend to the Lord's table. Despite their love of their own personal liberty and their open embrace of immorality, they desired a good standing in the church and to eat of the Lord's Supper. John Calvin, on the other hand, who was the pastor of the church in Geneva, he called for discipline. And he was emphatic that they may not share in communion without repentance of their sins. But the city council, which in those days was involved in all matters of governance, including in the church, they sided with the libertines and they ordered the church to serve them the supper. Calvin, however, wouldn't budge. And so a showdown came on September 3rd, 1553. It was John Calvin and the church versus the libertines and the city. John Calvin physically fenced the table with his own body and held his ground. He stood between them and the table of the Lord, and he held his ground, and he said this. He said, these hands you may crush, these arms you may lop off, my life you may take, my blood is yours, you may shed it, but you shall never force me to give holy things to the profaned and dishonor the table of my God. Theodore Beza who was Calvin's successor in Geneva as the pastor there, and his first biographer, he notes this of that moment. He said, after this, the sacred ordinance was celebrated with a profound silence and under solemn awe in all present, as if the deity himself had been visible among them. Salvation brings a complete change in heart which translates into a complete change in attitude and action. The libertines were not saved. They were living in sin, and they were blasphemously unrepentant. Repentance and transformation or sanctification are a part of salvation. If a person is truly regenerate, they will be changed, and the changing will be ongoing. This is what we're seeing as we work our way through this epistle. Paul's letter to 
Titus. We're seeing Paul faithfully doing great commission work. He's heard Jesus' words in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. And he's doing them. And he's instructing Titus in them as well. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The present tense of your salvation and mine is that you are being changed. You are being sanctified. You are being saved. Romans chapter 8 Verses 12 and 13 puts it like this. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. To quote John Owen, he said, Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. And that very next verse from Romans 8, I read 12 and 13, but verse 14 says this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So discipleship, being taught to observe all of Christ's commands, is both putting to death the deeds of the flesh and also being led by the Spirit of God. And so last Lord's Day, we saw how God is pleased for our good works and our holy lives to be a display of sound doctrine. We saw this in the opening verses of Titus chapter 2. In other words, our lives are to reflect the truth that we teach, the truth that we believe. This, of course, means that the the teaching of the church... Um, The teaching of the assembly of the saints must be sound. It must be healthy and in line with the word of God. It must be true. It must be gospel-centered. It must have a clear law-gospel distinction. It must be done decently and in order. And we're going to see that as we get into Corinthians in our study next. It must be done to build up the body of Christ and to glorify the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then flowing from this teaching, the sound doctrine, verse 1, flowing from this, the families of the church should be sound in the faith. And this is cyclical, right? It's a cycle. Older, uh, younger men become older men, right? Younger women become older women. Embrace it. It's going to happen, right? But this is not just in age, also in stature. It ought to be cyclical as younger men in stature become like the older men. And the same for the women. Dignity, soundness in faith, love, and steadfastness. Elders will be appointed from the ranks of the godly older men, those who are self-controlled, dignified, and sober-minded, And of those elders, at least one will be appointed as a a teaching elder who who will teach what accords with sound doctrine. And so the the cycle of making disciples continues. You can see that. Eventually there will be a new pastor here doing the same thing in chapter 2, verse 1. Eventually there will be new older men and new older women. The same goes on and on. We continue to make disciples in this cycle. 
And when you combine all of this, with the, especially with the, the vital, vitally important work of the older women, when you put all of this together, the older and the younger women, you put all of this together, you get a clear understanding of church life, right? In fact, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16 explains it like this. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherd teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love we could see that cycle here in Titus chapter 2 this is that constant cycle in the life of a church and and as such Paul comes right back to Titus's duty as the primary teaching elder as the pastor of the church in Crete Paul started with Titus's work in chapter 1 verse 5 He comes back to it, he circles back to Titus again in chapter 2, verse 1, and here we are again as Paul calls on Titus to be an example. So this is where we pick it up with a pastoral example, verses 7 and 8. Let me read these verses again. Titus 2, 7, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. The very first connection that we should make here as you look at those verses is that this this is connected to the previous verse, really to the whole section of uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, but especially verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. He's continuing the thought as he begins verse 7 and focuses on Titus himself. These are connected. Paul is instructing Titus to instruct the younger men of the church both by word and by example, as he says there. Of course, this is not only true for the younger men. I want to be clear about this. This is actually not just connected with verse 6, but with the entire chapter. But we do need to see a special connection there. Just as the older women were to teach and train the younger women, so also the influence of Titus's life and teaching is to spread among the, the younger, less mature men of the church. So let me just stop right here and think about this for a moment. Who are the biggest influences in the life of the young men of the church? Who are the biggest influences of the life of the, the young men in the church? Maybe even of this church. So I'm talking your young men. Who are the biggest influencers? Of course, we could expand this to also include the women, right? Who are the biggest influencers of the young women in the church? You know that Instagram and TikTok and probably some other social media things that keep popping up, they have a whole category of people called influencers, And influencers are paid by brands, all kinds of different companies pay them, in order to influence mostly younger men and women, right? 
I would argue that those influencers are probably doing a better job than you would think. There's a lot of them, and they pay them a lot of money to do what they do. Who is really influencing the younger men and women of the church? I know that pastors aren't cool. I know, I, thank you for laughing. <laughs> laughing in agreement. I know that pastors aren't cool. Any pastor who is cool probably isn't worth following because I believe he's probably compromised something along the way for the sake of his own vanity. But coolness is not the standard that Christ calls us to. Titus' example for the church of Crete, and this is no less true even today for us, Titus' example is in direct opposition even to the false teachers of Crete who were unfit for any good work, he says in chapter 1. In fact, Titus is called to be a model of good works. You can see This is in direct opposition, a model of good works. So what does this mean? What are the good works that Titus is to be an influencer toward? When we think of good works, we usually think of things like feeding the poor, volunteering at a homeless shelter or a pregnancy center, helping little old ladies cross the street. We usually think of these external things that the Bible does speak of, those things that God does care about deeply. In fact, things that churches ought to be actively involved in. But remember the context of Titus. Remember what's happening in these chapters. All along here, we've been talking about character. All along here, Titus has been addressing the character of churchmen, the character of the women of the church. He's not suddenly laying a law on them. That's that's good works, right? In and of themselves, good works are actually law. So here's what I mean. Good works, the way that we think of them, okay, they can be best summed up with the phrase, love your neighbor as yourself, right? That's a good summary of good works. Love your neighbor as yourself. Um, In fact, that's law, though. Let me show you what I mean. Listen to how Jesus put it in Matthew 22. Verses 36 to 40, he was asked, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Another time he said this in Luke chapter 10. Verses 25 to 28, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we'll just stop there for a second. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? This is where Jesus, if in our minds, should have offered him the gospel. Listen to his answer. He said to him, What's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. And that should stop us in our tracks. Because the problem here is that Jesus Christ is the only person who could ever fully do that. The law says, do this and you will live, but the gospel says, Jesus has done it, now live in him. 
So when Paul tells Titus to be a model of good works, he's telling him to be like Christ. And Titus has the ability to be like Christ because he's been clothed in Christ's righteousness. This is the promise of Isaiah 61, verse 10, which says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest in a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. The only way that we can do good works is because of the work of Christ. Because Christ has covered us with the garments of salvation and his robe of righteousness. And there's a play on words here in this too. We miss this in English. Um, Paul actually says it outright at the end in verse 14. He will explain all of these things. But he implies it right here at the beginning when he calls Titus to be a model of good works. The word model, or some versions might translate it as example, it actually means a pattern or a prototype. In a couple of places, it's translated as a a figure or a form. So think of a a statue being a, a figure or the form of a real person, right? He's to be a model of good works. But this can also be translated as a type or a mark. Do you remember manual typewriters? Okay. Remember how you would strike the key, especially manual typewriters. You had to strike it pretty hard. And the arm would swing up with a letter on it or some other symbol that you wanted to print on the paper. And it would swing up and it would strike the ribbon and leave a mark on the paper. That's how this same word is used in John 20, verse 25. Listen to this. So the other disciples said to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails... And place my finger into the mark of the nails. And place my hand into his side. I will never believe. It's the same word. The one who bears those marks is our ultimate model of good works. In fact, it's our ultimate good work when he took those marks on the cross. But Paul continues because not only is Titus to model this in all respects, but this combined with his teaching will render his opponents speechless. It will silence them, he says. Look at the end of verse 8. In sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. He will silence them. Look up at chapter 1, verse 11. Remember the opponents, they must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So if you put all of this together, especially really verses 6, 7, and 8, you have to conclude that by Titus's ministry, by the consistency between his life and his doctrine, his teaching, through, through this... Through Titus' life and teaching, young men will be discipled. 
that godliness will be both caught and taught specifically. I think it's, I think it's actually shameful that we have such low expectations for young people today. Especially young men. We don't expect them to know and understand the great truths of Scripture. We don't expect them to know and understand things that pertain to life and godliness. Yet the world knows that they are capable of learning algebra, chemistry, song lyrics, the rules of football, or, and this happened to me yesterday, how to order a cup of something that's not just black coffee at Starbucks. I have no idea how to order anything that's not just black coffee at Starbucks. The world says that they can learn these things. Why can't they learn who God is and what he has said? One commentary on this passage said this. It said, many churches today cater the entire worship service to a youthful style so that instead of urging the young to grow up, the whole church becomes immature. Well, you can think what you want about music and worship style, but that is a profoundly true statement. And so instead of stooping to meet the kids where they are in their maturity level, Titus was to teach God's word with integrity, dignity, and godly maturity, and in a way that would encourage the young men in particular to follow suit. Titus chapter, or 2 Timothy 2, 2 says this, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so young men, be men. But again, this is not just limited to the younger men. Paul instructs Pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, verse 16. He says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Word and deed. The pastoral example is to point always to the gospel. But again, I keep saying this, this is not just simply concerning young men or even the families of the church. In fact, no one in the church is excluded from living in such a way that points to Christ and to his gospel. And we can see this where Paul goes next specifically. He goes to the example of slaves. Look at verses 9 and 10. Verse 9, bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Now, there are two words in this that people don't like. They don't like the word bondservant or slave. It's the word doulos. We've looked at that a few times before. And they don't like the word submissive or submit, to be in submission. And that really right here means the same as it does up in verse 5. Submission has to do with, in fact, the definition is arranging one's gifts under the purpose of those in proper authority. And it just simply means what it says. In the case of slaves, they are to do what they are assigned to do and do it well. They're to work as to the Lord and not to men. And the attitude toward their work is is pretty straightforward in these verses. And, And again, it's not a real high standard. In fact, it's pretty hard to argue that these traits don't apply to any worker or employee. 
Please your boss. Don't be argumentative with him. Don't embezzle or steal from your employer. Those are not real high standards for employment, are they? Rather, show good faith. Be trustworthy. If you're self-employed, this means that you have customers, and so it applies to you as well. Submission is only an issue if there is disagreement, right? Submission is only an issue when there's a disagreement. You've worked for good bosses, and when you did, you probably enjoyed your work, right? Some of you had a good boss before, and you enjoyed what you did. You did what you were told. You did it with a good attitude because you enjoyed it and you liked your boss. Paul is simply saying that if you don't have a good boss, do it in the same way so that you may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. But the bigger problem here is that we don't like the word bondservant or slave. And what's clear is that Paul does not deal with the issue of slavery, not here. In our modern minds, especially in the year of our Lord 2021, we want Paul to deal with the issue of slavery here. We desperately want Paul to issue a proclamation and free the slaves, but he doesn't. He doesn't even call them to stand up and fight for justice or freedom. He actually does the opposite of what we think, in our minds, what the world thinks Paul should do. He tells them to submit. He simply instructs these church members who were slaves on how they ought to conduct themselves as members of the household of God. And what should be noteworthy in all of this is that Paul actually addresses slaves in several places in the New Testament. In fact, he wrote a whole book about it. It's called Philemon. He specifically speaks to slaves. He does the same in Colossians and in Ephesians as well, speaking specifically to those Christians who were slaves. And the point is this. What should stand out to us is that there were many Christians who were slaves, probably in every single church. In fact, it's likely that most Christians during the New Testament era were of the lower classes of society. Even think of the disciples themselves. While they may not have been slaves, they were working men. They were not government bureaucrats, except for maybe Matthew, who left it behind. Possibly Judas Iscariot, who didn't leave it behind. Now, there were some wealthy Christians um, during the New Testament era. We know of a few And those wealthy Christians often gave of their wealth to the church. So think of Joseph of Arimathea, for example. He was a rich member of the Sanhedrin, but also the Gospels, each of them mentioned that he was a good and righteous disciple of Jesus Christ who gave his own new tomb for Christ to be buried in. Although he only needed it for a couple of days. Others would open their homes for the church to meet in. Philemon, Priscilla and Aquila are just a couple of examples of those who were probably wealthy and had large enough homes for the church to meet in. And so Paul's point isn't to address slavery as an injustice, but to remind them that Christ has set them free indeed. 
Not merely in this life, but for all of eternity. And because they are free in Christ, they are able to live as those who are free from sin. Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to 15 says this, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. I want to point out there that he even says um, that the whole law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, is fulfilled. It's fulfilled because Christ fulfilled it. Serve and love one another. And so no matter what category you find yourself in this morning, whether it is elder, chapter 1, Older man, older woman, younger woman, younger man, slave. If you're a Christian, see to it that all that you do is done to advance the mission of the church, the cause of Christ, to encourage sinners to salvation, always pointing to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unless there be any misunderstanding, Paul tells us exactly what the gospel is and what it does right here in verses 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The gospel trains us. Trains us, and if you notice the end of verse 12, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Those are all characteristics from earlier in the chapter. The gospel trains us, works in us. God's, the Holy Spirit, using the word of God, trains us to live in such a way that is Christ-like, that we might adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. I think we will pick it up here in couple of weeks, Lord willing. Would you pray with me? Father, I almost want to just keep going to get into the gospel. What you have done in Jesus Christ. As a result of what you have done, how we then may live as changed people, people who have seen your mercy people who have tasted of your grace, people who have believed in the only begotten Son of the eternal God, people who have been redeemed from our lawlessness, from our sin, and transformed to be like Christ. Father, help us to understand these things, to apply these things in our own lives that we might be good employees, not just simply for the sake of being good employees, but to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, to glorify God, 
to point at the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, that we would train our children, that we would teach them the great truths of Scripture, who you are and what you have done, that they might be Christ-like, that they might be like Christ, so that when they are old men and old women, that they would pass on the faith. We believe that Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Father, we pray that you would continue to use us in that work. And as we come to the table, Lord, and proclaim the death of Christ, it is our desire, Lord, to do so to glorify and honor you and to encourage the saints. So, Father, we pray that we would not do this flippantly, but that we would be doing this as a changed people, those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.